Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 63. This week I'm really pleased to say that I'm joined by Mark Beaumont. Um, now, how to describe him? Um, I suppose you could call him an adventurer. Um, he is a broadcaster, um, an author, a documentary filmmaker as well, um, rector of, of Dundee University. And, I mean, he, from a very young age, he'd been taking on um, challenges, specifically sort of cycling challenges. And then post-university, he decided to cycle around the world and attempt to beat the current world record. And he did it. And he created a documentary off the back of that for the BBC, which we, we sort of go into. And we go into the ups and downs and the sort of some of the harrowing sort of aspects of that as well and the sort of mental strength required. And then he's had this, I mean, amazing career where he's he has built a sustainable career off the back of that, which is can't really be said for for many people who take on this sort of adventure and challenges. Um, and he explains how he has built this this business. Um, and and to be honest, we don't we don't actually talk about the, the challenges in the cycling that much. Which I mean, I personally I was surprised about, um, but I think Mark found it quite refreshing um and I, I mean i was particularly interested in how he's built this career um in a sort of i mean a very unique way and it's fascinating to hear his his drive and obviously the sort of the foundation of that um, from his degree in, in economics and yeah how he's built these relationships um and mechanisms and the, the sort of way that he, he takes things on and the, and the way that he he looks at them and sets goals is is absolutely fascinating and really inspiring and he, he talks about how not to strive for that for for beating the, the past record by that one percent but striving for what's actually possible and that's what led him to absolutely smash the the world record again um last year um, and take that down to 78 days um, which is it's absolutely remarkable it's all down to that that real planning and that sort of mental strength and that drive and putting the right things in place to believe that you can do absolutely what is possible and no matter what you will continue to achieve your goals day in day out and we also sort of dive into this idea of sort of building a personal brand and a narrative around it and it's something Mark's done fantastically well and that's how he's been able to capture the sort of media attention and sort of really make the most of everything that he's done um and really build this narrative around himself and i think it's something that we can learn in creative practice um and really take out of this is that we all need to take that time to sort of consider who our audience is and who we're trying to speak to and how we do that and how we deliver that message and how we do that in a sort of the most accessible way possible but yeah, I mean, there, there are so many, so many brilliant facets to this, this chat. I mean, also type one and type two fun. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but the whole concept is fascinating and something that I yeah, really definitely buy into. Um, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up now. Um, but if, if you are new to the podcast, if you're picking this up for the first time, um, and you want to find out more or you want to keep up to date, um, you'll find us. It's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. And it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, or you'll find us on any good uh, podcast platform, whether that's iTunes or whatever else. 
But yeah, let's get into the episodes. This is, this is number 63, and this is with Mark Beaumont. When I'm 12 years out from graduating, and if you look back at everything I've done professionally, there's the risk that it sort of looks inevitable because there's a fairly chronological stepping stone from one to the next. The big projects I've taken on have all given me the confidence, the skill sets, the networks to do whatever came next. So looking back, it all looks fairly, fairly seamless, whereas <laughs> that's not for a second, you know, how it's felt. And it would be an absolute lie to reverse engineer the last, you know, 12 years and pretend that I plan to do this. You know, I was an economics graduate, economics and politics graduate who went out to go on one big adventure to end all adventures after university. It was like a post-university year out. And then by doing that properly, by filming a big BBC documentary and, um, you know, smashing the world record for cycling around the world, it, uh, it suddenly opened doors. And, uh, yeah, you go from like pulling pints in, as a student job, you know, earning minimum wage to suddenly being offered, you know, TV advert deals, book deals, talk tours, and you're thrown into the public eye. And that's not to say it's an easy ride because it's always difficult to get funding. It's always difficult to get projects off the ground. But as a, you've got to imagine as a 22, 23-year-old suddenly realizing what a public profile can do in terms of opening doors and giving you the opportunity to, you know, carry on a career that you're, you're really passionate about. You know, I was like, wow, I can actually make a, a living from adventure. And I think for, for some people around me, you know, maybe my dad and, and others, you know, they've maybe been of the opinion, you know, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to sort of fit back into normality, whatever that is? But for me, um, you know, I've always been passionate about growing a business. You know, I think the public see me as a bike rider, but, you know, the thing I'm really passionate about is, is, is growing a business and trying to figure out how at all times I can keep more than anything else, the freedom of time, the luxury of time to do the things that I'm most interested in. Look after family, be out there creating an impact with the causes, a lot in Scotland that I care about and growing a, a business which I'm passionate about, doing stuff I enjoy. So when, when you talk about a business, what, what is that, that business? Well, I see my, my world in three parts. One is an athlete, one is a broadcaster, and the third in the corporate world. I figured out very early on that a lot of people who are sort of quote-unquote professional adventurers and, and athletes were out there every year looking for sponsorship. But then, you know, regardless of how expensive that was, they would spend it all. And then they'd be back cap in hand looking for more sponsors for the next year. So you can... You can be doing what you love, but you're living life like a student. There's no growth business in that. So you've got to somehow separate the business from the projects. So I decided very early on that, you know, sponsors don't want to be paying for your mortgage, your salary, your team around you, all that sort of stuff. They want to be paying for the big trips. So you separate the two. So I decided to build a portfolio of corporate clients. And I don't mean event speaking like, after dinner, business breakfast, conferences, all that stuff. They're great, but again, 
people who make their living out of just doing that, they're reactive. They're waiting for the world to knock on their door and to create value. And you can have great months and you can have months when you get no work at all. So again, there's no growth, there's no stability in that business. So event work should be your, your, um, your bonus. That should be your nice to have on top of a good basic. Now, my basic was trying to build a retained a portfolio of retained roles that wanted to be a part of my journey. So they were not event sponsors, but businesses who year on year wanted to say, look, Mark's part of our team and I'm part of their team. So I started out just being a corporate ambassador, standing up, telling my story, very anecdotal. And then as the years went on, um, doing more workshops, being involved in the internal sort of growth plans of businesses, developing businesses, opening doors. And then, you know, in the literally just in, in the last while, that's even more involved. That's actually taking a stake in the business. That's non-exec work. That's being a part of working on the business, not working in the business. These are not my businesses. But if I've got, you know, between four and six of those retained roles, that takes up quite a lot of my time. But they're not my sponsors. That gives me a great breadth of business and really interesting, um, you know, diverse challenges, which are completely aside from the fact, you know, I ride a bike and break world records. So I think that's a side of what I do that nobody ever sees. Um, but it kind of more draws on my background, you know, I guess graduating out of economics and what I was passionate about at university, which was all around leadership, organization of the unions and the politics and, on, and that side of things. So I've never been, I was never a professional competitive athlete growing up. You know, I very much, you know, to your description, grew up in the wild man adventure side and I've become more and more about performance, but I never wanted to do that at the expense of having a, a decent business at the heart of it. Because if you don't have that, you never create enough headspace to actually do the things which are most important in life, which is family and trying to give back to things that you, you care about. You know, charity does very much start at home. And if, you, if you're constantly worrying about how you're going to make your way, then uh, you, you never, and I realize, you know, I'm 35 now, what a freedom of time it is to actually be able to choose and I get to choose to do what I do. And uh, not everyone does that. So, I mean, going back to the first big adventure, um, what were the real drivers for that first adventure? Well, I mean, I guess leaving university, you've got to sort of rewind an extra 10 years. I mean, I was 11 years old. I was at, you know, the high school at Dundee. I was... Well, actually, I was just starting. So I was homeschooled uh, until secondary school. So until the age of 11, going on 12, I was working on the farm. Grew up, um, got a small holding outside of Blairgarry, Bridgecally, middle of Perthshire. And so mum and dad in the late 80s, early 90s were making a go of organics. Not on a particularly big scale. And kind of before organics became sort of known and mainstream. So um, it wasn't a particularly fantastic business, but it was an amazing place to grow up. I mean, for me and my two sisters, we had just incredible freedom. Um, I spent an hour or two around the kitchen table doing subjects, you know, that was it. But every morning there was 60 goats to milk. There was 13 horses and ponies to put out and muck out. There was um, 200 uh, hens to collect the eggs from. There was a farm to run. So it was, you know, I was quite close to Glen Shee. So I was a skier, I was horse riding, I was cycling. 
I was just outside all the time. So I was 11 years old when I read in the Courier, you know, the Dundee Courier about a guy who had cycled John Groot's Land's End. I wish I'd kept it. I wish I knew who he was. You know, at the time, you've got to put your, yourself in the mind of a, an 11-year-old. I, I didn't know that tens of thousands of people did that year. I just thought, wow, that's cool. You get your story in the paper and you raise some money for a local Dundee charity. So I, um, I remember going to the farm car, which was the Landy, and getting a, a highlighter pen and finding the roads from the top of Scotland to the bottom of England. And uh, I, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure dad got it to begin with. He probably just told me off for putting highlighter all over the map. But, um, but, but mum said, well, you know, this is, this, is, uh, you know, this is quite an exciting idea. Why don't you try something smaller first? Because you've not really cycled off the farm before. And uh, so I recruited a friend and we cycled across Scotland. We went from Discovery Point to the waterfront in, in Oban. Took three days. Uh, raised a couple of grand for a few Scottish charities. And um, I loved it. Like everything from the planning to the ride, the adventure, and then at the end, telling my story. You know, I can remember as a 12-year-old walking into TFM and... Uh, and doing my first radio interview and then getting our picture in, that, in the courier. And I thought, well, this is full circle. Like I've had the idea from somebody else doing a ride and here we are. So I was 15 when I got to Solo, Solo John O'Groats Land's End. That was my first thousand mile ride. And the trips got bigger and bigger over the years until I, when I was leaving Glasgow. Um, yeah, it was a big leap. You know, my biggest ride to that point was about 3000 miles. But it wasn't that crazy to go, do you know what? Let's cycle around the world. I didn't... Why did I choose that? Because I thought at that point, I'm just going to have one chance to go on a big adventure and then I'll go back and do my CA, become an accountant and work in finance. You know, you've got to imagine I was in a class of 300 graduating in economics and everyone's just talking about who can get the best paid graduate placement scheme. Nobody is talking about job satisfaction. Nobody is talking about, you know, work-life balance, where they want to live, what they aspire to. Everyone's just talking. I can remember one of my friends got a, graduate placement scheme with was it Lidl or Aldi and they, that came with a company Audi and he started on like 40k and in the mind of a 22 year old graduating that was absolutely striking gold I mean we just thought that this guy had made it you know he'd, he'd been bought by a 40 grand salary in a company Audi now I mean I'm sure he's very happy in his career and there's nothing wrong with that but I'm, I'm just trying to describe as a graduate the conversation you're having with hundreds of other graduates around you is very much is very competitive and it's very much about a single culture of you know trying to find financial security trying to do the things which are accepted as um success you know this is what you're meant to do that's actually really interesting that you've i mean i've brought this the concept of success up quite a lot in the podcast oh, yeah. and it's it's getting everyone's perception of, of what that means to them and i think more and more especially with the, the sort of people that i've been talking to they've had pivot points in their career where it changes from being financially driven to being emotionally driven or sort of um finding that fulfillment that isn't necessarily having the zeros in the bank account or having the material goods that comes with it i mean i think we're all on that spectrum somewhere yeah. and some people will say money doesn't matter. I'm all for life's experiences. I'm not that, I'm not that either. You know, I'm hugely ambitious in terms of growing the business, looking after those that work in the business, myself, my kids, my family, you know, I, 
it would be an absolute lie to say that I'm not financially driven. I am. The most important word for me is choice. You know, how many people take their education and then really choose what they then do with it? And for me, you know, I was lucky that there was a couple of things happened while I was leaving university that gave me the ability to sort of break out of that culture of trying to keep up with 300 graduates all going for the same. There's nothing wrong with it. And I want to, I want to really stress the point, you know, there's nothing about what I say that's anti-establishment or, you know, you can work for the world's largest corporation or you can set up your own business. You know, they're both success as long as it's your choice, as long as, now, when I say your choice, you know, I really have issue when people say, what's your five-year plan? Who are you going to be? All that, that, that nonsense doesn't work either because very few people know, you know, quote unquote, who they want to be. For me, it's about having that sense of fulfillment and enjoyment and actually a sense of freedom with what they do. We live in a part of the world where you can genuinely choose to do what you wish. We can take our education in many different ways. So I would say that if that definition of success is, is, is simply about profit, you know, it leaves you very, very um, unhappy. Um, but taking taking finances and profit out the equation entirely, I think, is completely unrealistic to the world we live in. I'd say the two the two pivot points for me was I went on an internship um, when I was at when I was about to leave university. I went to with the Saltire Foundation, Entrepreneurial Scotland. I went to Boston. And I did a 10 week intern in a job, which I was like, why am I here? They've put me in a corporate HR position. You know, I'm an economist, I'm, I work in finance. But you know what? It allowed me to see people that were 10, 20, 30 years into their career, have lots of conversations and to see what made people happy and who was, who I thought was still in the driving seat of their career and who was just sort of in cruise control. And it sort of, gave me the confidence coming back. So this was going into my fourth year to say, do you know what? Success is not success in the eyes of the class around me. You know, I don't need to, I can give myself a wider context to success rather than just those who I know at this point in my life. You know, now that class of 300, I probably know five of them. So the things which were really important to me at the time don't matter at all now. And those little decisions at the time, which seem almost insignificant, have led me down entirely different paths in life. I would say the second, the, the second sort of turning point, which sort of gave me that context at that point, was leaving university and going, I can't head into a graduate placement scheme without having been on a big adventure. And if I'm only going to go on one adventure, let's cycle around the world. I assumed that the circumnavigation world record would be insane i thought it would be like the sailing around the world record i thought it would be the most professional coveted endurance race out there i thought it would be the pinnacle of the sport it barely been touched only five people had ever gone for it and the record stood at 276 days which not to be unkind is pretty slow and so i thought you know i've never been coached i've never been trained you know i just thought why is that not being done properly how's that for a gap in the market i could i could claim the fastest circumnavigation by bicycle as a kid who have who has spent his whole university, you know, not as an athlete, but you know, running the sports union, being involved in politics at university, but certainly not as an athlete. Um, I thought, wow, I could do this. And I set an incredibly simple sum. 100 miles a day, 
for 18,000 miles, which is what you need to do, 180 days. Let's allow a day off a fortnight for flights and recovery. So that target's 195. I got around the world in 194 days and 17 hours. But I never looked back and thought, I'm going to go back and do my CA. And, you know, there's been incredibly difficult projects and massive mistakes. And, but I've, I've never gone back to thinking, I don't have the ability to create it myself. You know, it's that student teacher mindset where you're waiting to be noticed or waiting to be promoted or waiting to be, you know, yeah, just, just waiting for life to happen. You know, it's, it's more the confidence to sort of say, if it's going to happen, I'm going to create it. And that's nothing to do with riding your bike. I'm interested to find out why, why it is a bike. I mean, that's predominantly been the big challenges that you've done have been on a bike. Um, so do you think it's, there's something in particular that, that pulled you towards that? And, or could it have been anything? It was just the bike was there. I mean, I've always had a very utilitarian relationship with the bicycle. You know, I don't name it. It's not a, it's not a friend. I know I've got, I've got friends who name their bikes. You know, I guess they name them, you know, girls' names like you would name a, a yacht. You know, it's not that to me. It's, it's, it's a tool for the, for, I love, I love journeys by bicycles. It's the perfect speed to explore the world. I mean, I've been to 130 countries in the last 10 years and it's, you join, you join places up. You know, you, you get to see the world like a slideshow. I, I absolutely love the pace that a bike takes you at. You know, walking's too slow. In a car, you're completely cut off from the world around you. A bicycle, you get to see it all and you get to see it in detail. So in that sense, it's perfect. But I also think as a broadcaster, the bicycle has an accessibility which nothing else has. You know, so when I've gone mountaineering or ocean rowing or Arctic exploration, or, or open water swimming, or some of the other big stuff I've done. It's great, and you can make telly out of it, but it doesn't, people can't do what I do. You know, you know, your average person cannot cycle around the world in 80 days, but they can ride a bicycle. They can imagine riding a bicycle through the Sahara Desert, or, you know, through the, the Gobi, or, you know, through the Outback. You know, you can, you can ride a bicycle you can, you've got enough context, enough reference points to imagine you doing that. So in that sense, it doesn't have any barriers. You know, as soon as you go to row the Atlantic or go across the ice cap, it's just, you might as well be on Mars. You know, it's just so otherworldly. So I think as a, at the end of the day, my career has not been allowed by the fact that I smash records. It's been for the fact that I broadcast stories. And you've got to be very clear about that. When I first set the record in 2008, it was very quickly beaten. And it was beaten six, seven, eight times over the years before I came back and then retook it last year. And, and sadly and entirely unfairly, those who broke my record never got the credibility and the credit for what they had done because they didn't parallel that sporting ambition with the broadcast opportunity. And so I came back you know, last year and the year before saying I was going to break the circumnavigation world record. And most sponsors said, well, don't you already have that? Don't you already hold that? You know, you're trying to break your own record. So it's not enough to be good at what you do. You have to also, you know, figure out who you are as a brand, you know, what the, what the, the earned media value is, how you build profile around what you do. 
you know, having the core skill set is is a really important starting point. But, you know, building a business, leadership, any development is is building value in who you are rather than what you do. You know, if you're a brilliant joiner, but you define yourself by how well you can, you know, work with wood your entire career, you will always be a great joiner. If If as a cyclist, you define yourself by how your power output on the bike or your ability to climb hills fast, you might be a good cyclist. But you're not going to build a business. You know, you have to grow beyond your technical skill set. And for me, that's about your network. That's about your ability to spot opportunities. It's about your ability to work under pressure and in stressful situations. So I think if you look at the business that I've grown with my team over the last 10 years, yeah, I've got a core skill set as a bike rider. But that would never have built the business you know that's that's the core narrative but lots of other people have done that and let I me mean, look at me i'm six foot three and 90 kilos i'm not your you know i'm not your world's best bike rider you know I, I, i've spotted opportunities and i've built broadcast projects it's a different thing so i mean is it about the journey that you go on and these sort of adventures and these stories that you build um is it about the escape and getting away from the sort of the rest of the world and just being you and the road. What is it that, that really appeals? I think when I started, there was a lot of that. I want to escape and, you know, figure out what I'm made of. And I've always been fiercely competitive, but with myself, I've never raced. I will never replicate the raw emotion and wonder and wide-eyed naivety of that first cycle around the world. You know, it's the first time, you know, can you imagine being 22, graduating from uni, and then you're suddenly sleeping in mosques in Iran or under armed escort through the Pakistan-Afghan border, or there was a day in Louisiana where I was hit by a car and then mugged by a gang, you know, that's a pretty shocking day. But, you know, there was nothing in my life until that point that had given me any, um, you know, anything on that scale. So the more you go on and the more you travel, the I guess the, the more streetwise you get and the more the harder it is to be shocked and surprised in that sense. You always go out, well, I go out having planned trips as carefully as I can, but the exciting bit is the unknown around the corner. You know, the fact that every day is different. So the core motivation is definitely figuring out what's possible, you know, what that personal best is. But it's also the excitement of the unknown. And I think it's the reason I've never been a competitive athlete. You know, I've never just raced a race. You know, I've always wanted to go out and cross continents or cross oceans or cross ice caps. You know, it's for me, it's um, I'd be the world's worst nomadic traveler. You know, I love I love that sense of urgency and momentum when you're on any of these trips. But when you actually describe what it's like, it sounds miserable. And, you know, people say, well, why would you do that? I get two things. People often say to me, I'd love to do what you do. And then I normally say, I think you like the idea of what I do because you watched it, you know, on social media or whatnot. And that's not a hero statement. That's just simply the fact that it's not everyone's idea of fun. You know, you've got to be able to suffer. You've got to be able to put yourself through stuff. But um, if you look at the evolution over the, over the I guess, the last decade, it's become less and less about the adventure and more and more about performance. You know, I've become more and more hungry just to be able to want to answer the question, 
what is that personal best? If I could put all my cards on the table, what is the ultimate? And what I felt with a lot of these big projects and journeys was there was a compromise between the wild man element, where am I sleeping, where's my next meal, and how fast can you go? You know, what's the ultimate? So what is the, in your opinion, what's the balance of your your skill set that gets you through these challenges? How much of it is the training and the preparation? How much do you think that um, it's sort of natural ability? And how much is the sort of mental strength that comes into that? Well, I think the only bit which is natural ability is to build a physicality where you are very resilient to injury. So on the physical side, there's a lot faster bike riders than me out there, but you've got to be, you know, mo a lot of professional riders would just, if you're riding two, 240 miles a day, 16 hours a day on the bike for two and a half months, you know, that level of sleep deprivation, that level of physicality on the bike, you know, I think a lot of people would just get some repetitive strain injury or tendonitis and just break down. So you've got to be incredibly resilient to injury. Um, but once you've got that, it's your ability to think your way through it. I don't think most people, most bike riders in particular, would, would have the, the want. You know, you've got to really believe in the plan and want to do this. So before you even start, I think the skill set is to spot an opportunity. To have the confidence to build a plan around what you think is possible. Most athletes, all they ever try and do is beat last year or beat next best. You know, success is defined by being market leader at a point in time. If you look at my track record, I've never pipped a record. I've either completely... I guess, created a leap in performance, done something completely different or, or have failed. So take the last two. So I broke the 2015, I, I broke the Canada to Cape Town world record. I took it from 59 days down to 41 days, 10 hours, 22 minutes. That's not a margin. Uh, last year, smashed the circumnavigation world record, which is an 18,000 mile record um, by 39%. So took it from 123 days down to 78 days in 14 hours. You know, people always talk about marginal gains. I'm a huge fan of marginal gains, but don't start with marginal gains. You know, how many athletes have come to me and said, right, I want to talk more about nutrition. So I see, see if I can get another 1% out of that or bike design. That's all great. But if you're playing around with the margins, having never actually had a big picture conversation about what your target is based on your potential, your team, your circumstances, not just trying to repeat history a wee bit better, then, you know, margins for what? I mean, to give you an example, there's three women setting off this summer to break the female circumnavigation world record. All three of them got in touch with me um, to say they were off to do this. And uh, they were all asking questions around route choice and bike choice and nutrition and different bits and bobs, which was great to hear. Um, but my first question to all three was, what's your target? And all three of them said, well, it's the current world record. You know, that's what we're out there to beat, which for on the female record is 144 days. You know, so if they were going, right, the record is set in stone at 144 days and we're going to try and figure out our optimal, you know, bike setup and nutrition and hydration and sleep pattern and all that sort of stuff, but still fixating on breaking the record, you'll probably break the record. But you're never going to 
your potential. So I'm certainly when three of you are going at the same time, you know, only one of the three of you is going to break the record or certainly hold on to it. All of the, all of the groundwork happens around figuring out what your target should be. My target is never what the record is. My target is what I believe is possible. And, uh, and only, only once you figure that out, you then get into conversations of all the marginal stuff. And I think, I think that really broad brushstroke approach, the confidence to address what should be possible with the best team you can recruit is the blindingly obvious step that a lot of people miss. So I go back to the start. I'm not the world's best bike rider. I think my strength is spotting opportunities and then getting a, recruiting a team that will buy into that. So I want to delve a little bit further into mental strength and mental health as well. Um, obviously, you need unbelievable resilience. You go through um, a lot of pain, a lot of, of situations that are less than ideal. You talk about getting knocked off your bike, getting mugged, was the capsizing in the Atlantic as well. Really harrowing experiences that you need to pick yourself up and then meet your goal for the next day and the next day and the next day and continue with that with the sleep deprivation, with the nutritional aspect of it, with everything on top of that. How, when you're at the lowest of the low, mentally, how do you keep yourself going? I don't think anyone is psychologically tough enough to when you get sleep deprived, when you get, you know, depressed, when you get major setbacks on a sporting journey or in anything in life. Um, if there's not very clear structure around what you do, I don't think anyone is tough enough to make the right decisions in the moment. You know, certainly when you, I mean, go back to last year, trying to get around the world in 80 days. When you're riding four times four hour sets a day, 16 hours a day on the bike, 240 miles a day average. That's not your best day, that's your average day. And you're sleeping five, five hours or less a night. You know, you go into idiot mode. You go into a really dark place. So there's two things. You've got to hand over leadership pretty effectively to the team around you. You know, you can't be the boss on the road. You've got to trust the people around you. Hand over the reins and don't take them back because then you undermine that responsibility. And this, the second part is you have to know, have a script to read off. The romantic notion of sport is that you, you head out there, you know, red-blooded, and you figure out what you're made of. You know, you dig deep, you commit, you fight, you figure it out. I've found out that when it's that tough, and certainly when you're on projects that last for weeks and months, you need to know what's expected. And you need to know what's expected of the team as well. I mean, trust me, when you wake, get your scratch at half past three in the morning, you've had four and a half hours kit, there's a storm raging outside, and you're feeling absolutely shocking, you don't turn to your team and say, what are we going to do today? You know, you get on the bike because that's what you did yesterday. You do 16 hours because that's what you can affect. You know, one day the wind's going to be against you. The other next day it's going to be with you. Topography, road conditions, border crossings, you know, for the same effort, ride time, sleep pattern, food and hydration, for the same inputs. One day that's going to take you 220, the next day it's going to take you 280 miles because of stuff you can't affect. Now, if you put the same effort in 
and only hit 220 miles and can't see that as a success, psychologically, it's going to be pretty brutal the next day. And um, you can't change the plan. You have to trust the long-term averages and know what everyone in the team is expected to do. So getting on the bike at five past four in the morning for my team was unacceptable. Even if I had a cracking tailwind and a downhill and I made up those miles within the first half hour because we weren't controlling what we could affect. So when I got off the bike at eight o'clock in the morning, it was the job of the team leader to get everyone together and say, why was Mark not on the bike at, at, at four? As I say, it's not specifically because of, um, you know, whether you did or did not cover the miles. It's because you're not controlling the very simple things that you can affect. So, you know, to your point, mental health, focus, a sense of purpose. It's all around having, we're creatures of habit, of routine. And it's all about building things into our routine, which gives us that, it means we're not having to be too conscious on everything we do. We're not deciding whether we will or we won't every day. There's just certain things we do that make us more productive and more efficient. And the more the more structure we have, the more momentum we build into what we do, the more, the more we focus on our simple inputs rather than worrying about outputs. You know, people spend their entire lives running around worrying about things that they don't control. And as soon as you have some level of analysis on actually that's within my remit and that's out with my remit, it gives you a far clearer sense of purpose and what you can actually affect and if you're having a really really bad day and really struggling you don't need to think too much about it you've got a script to read off so i mean you talk about your team there um so when you're i mean obviously you made this this transition so that your operations for an adventure is or a, a record attempt um there's a lot more people involved so how do you create a team around yourself and what qualities do you look for in the people that you uh, bring into that team last year there was about about 40 people working on the around the world in 80 days project so i couldn't recruit all of them i mean by the time it got to the the race you know my job was to ride the bike so i could dream this up and i can drive the project to the start line and i can recruit the key players but it's then up to them to recruit their teams. And as I say, by the time we get to that period of performance, the race around the planet, I've very much handed over the reins to them. We did a 3,000 mile training ride around the coastline of Britain, so London to London via the coast. We kept the story, the 80 days under wraps until then. There's nothing worse than announcing a plan and then having no content for six months. So the moment we went live, we left from London. We had, you know, earned media value, creative content from that moment on. We had, from that point, 200 days of real-time storytelling until we came back from Paris. So they ran Britain, 11 weeks to build towards the world, and then the race. So that was all very carefully choreographed. The people who came on the Around Britain we weren't really trying to test them for their core skill sets, be they, you know, performance managers, logistics managers, you know, physios, whatever part they were playing on the road or media team, you know, whatever their core skill set was. 
that wasn't what we were testing. We were testing the things I mentioned before, their ability to communicate clearly under pressure when sleep deprived, their ability to have a good buddy system to make sure that everyone was operating safely on the road. You know, nothing is worth risking a limb or a life for. So we needed people who, you know, were pretty calculated, not cavalier. And we needed people in a very simple sense were, were more than their technical ability. They had life experience, which gave them that dry smile when the chips were down. You know, they knew what, <laughs> they knew what type two fun was. They knew how to suffer well. And um, Can I just jump in there? Because I've heard you talk about type one versus type two fun. And I really want to explore that just a little bit. Can you explain what you mean by type two fun? I mean, I mean, people walk around sort of pretending that, you know, life is all about having fun in the moment. I think the, the things which really define us become, you know, life affirming, you know, career defining are the tough things. You know, I think looking around for the things which are immediately gratifying are, um, yeah, they're great in the moment, but they're quite shallow. So I think, I think it's the nature of who we are. We are, we are defined by a wish to, to, to be challenged, to, to have a sense of worth and purpose. And you can't do that lying in bed, you know? So type two fun often can be quite miserable, but it's ultimately what you look back on most fondly. You know, those who are around me, my family, support me brilliantly. But even my mum who works with me full time, you know, unless you've been with me at half past three in the morning, getting out your scratcher on the bike for another 16 hour block, you know, unless you've lived it, you know, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to really relate to that, you know. And I will say that with, with Nikki, my wife as well, you know, she couldn't support me any better. Absolutely brilliant. But there's still a, a void between her understanding and, and the reality because I'm the only person that's lived in my shoes. And the same goes for, the same goes for her with what she does. You know, I couldn't do what she does and you know, my mom would, but every one of my team, I think if you were to talk to them from certainly last year's project, one of the toughest things they've ever done. And if we were all sitting around in the pub talking about it, you know, sitting there with your pints, that's type one fun. But the, I guarantee the things that they'd be talking about are the tough days, the tough moments, the fallouts, the issues, the friction, the things which define the project, the things which not you can't do when you're sleepwalking. So that for me is calling out some of the myths and legends around success. People often talk about inspiration, and like, well, that's ins I think inspiration is an is an objective emotion. I can be inspired by somebody else, but uh, you know, when you're having a tough day, it feels tough. It doesn't feel inspired. You know, when you are in the pits, mentally and physically, it does not feel inspired. You know, do not give me a Muhammad Ali quote. I don't know what to do with that. You know, tell me the consequence of failing. That sense of accountability does not come from some, you know, out-of-body experience where you're suddenly lifted out the depths and you're, 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 you're driven to... I think it's important to call it what it is, you know, it can be, when you're battling to do something worthwhile, there's going to be some incredibly gritty moments where you feel real fear, you know? And um, it's, it's the sort of stuff you kind of wouldn't wish, wish on people, but 
I'm so glad I've been there. You know, I, I, you know, and it gives you, it gives you a quiet confidence when you're under pressure again to think clearly, communicate clearly, act clearly. And I just think for me, it's calling out some of the myths around success. You know, I was talking recently to the editor for Around the World in 80 Days, and he came in after the event. You know, he was given 150 hours of footage and said, make a doc out of that. And I was chatting to him on a conference call. He was based in South Africa. And he said, uh, one of the issues is you did exactly what you said you were going to do. In terms of telly, it all looks a bit inevitable. And it goes back to what I sort of said about my career to start with. That perspective only happens after the event. A sense of inevitability only happens once you've done what you're fighting to do. It feels scary. It feels tough. It feels anything but inevitable. Um, but it defines the whole project. And I think that's what having the confidence to spot that opportunity before you start, creating a plan that a team buys into, and then creating momentum in the project means that by the time you get to the finishing line of whatever it is, pedaling around the world or, or other, you're absolutely at the coalface. You've done it. You've lived it. You've lived the emotions of it. And it takes you time to sort of, sort of then sort of zoom out and get any perspective on it. I always feel like everyone else lives the, the success and the finish for you because everyone else is sort of seeing the, the big picture, whereas you're just stuck at the coalface having done it. And, um, you know, that's, that's enterprise for me. That's, that's what it takes. And that's, doesn't matter whether you're riding a bike or doing anything else. Before we sort of move on to, to Dundee, I just want to ask you, in your your day-to-day -day life, where are your moments of joy? Definitely family, 100%. I've got two beautiful daughters and uh, I need... I need, I need a sense of, even though I travel a huge amount, like all of us, I need a sense of home, a sense of purpose. Uh, you know, my mum works with me full time. Uh, that sense of responsibility is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a more driving force than anything else. I would balance that by saying, I still absolutely love adventure. You know, I still, you know, given the opportunity to, you know, go off the beaten track and just, just explore, just adventure, just to whatever it is, you know, it, I guess that part drives Nikki nuts because, you know, I'll always be somebody who, if there's, you know, if we're going for a walk and there's a footbridge across the river, I'd prefer to, you know, take my shoes off, roll, roll my trousers up and wade through the river because it's more fun than walking across the bridge. You know, that's that's definitely me. Cool. So, I mean, you've been in post for two years, just over two years, um, as rector of Dundee University. Um, why? Why take that on? The um, Dundee as a city has changed almost beyond recognition since I graduated from the high school. My big sister, no, my, well, both, both my sisters actually have, have been associated with the University of, um, of Dundee. Um, my, my little sister uh, graduated in zoology, actually at the, um, 
at the graduation service where Brian Cox was uh, was 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 starting his role as as rector, and I just remember what an amazing speech he did. I mean, you could tell he was straight from Hollywood. It was wonderful. You know, it definitely captured the cared hall. And I, at that point, when Brian was imposed, I knew nothing about the role of rector. I had no real connection with the city, having left as a student and not gone back much as a pupil. But through my career, I had a couple of roles in Scotland with Entrepreneur of Scotland, the Saltire Foundation, and as honorary president of Scottish Student Sport. So I was still very much connected with that university age group at um, Scott. And, and, and I've said it before, my big passion and my big sort of hobby horse is making sure that trying to encourage people, regardless of their education, to have that quiet confidence to make some real choices about what they do next. And that's not, this is what I want to be when I grow up. It's actually enjoying what they do even if it's only for the next year or two and it takes you in a completely different direction, feel like you're in charge of what you do. Don't just be in cruise control. And worst of all, don't do something because you think 10, 15, 20 years down the line, it's going to buy you the life which you've always dreamt of. Because my goodness, that really, really doesn't work, especially in the fast-changing world we live in. So through Scottish Student Sport and the Saltire Foundation, I really enjoyed those roles. And I really enjoyed all those conversations I was having with with, with students, but it didn't feel particularly direct. You know, there wasn't one group or cohort that I was, I was really getting to work with closely. You know, I was doing the odd event once or twice a year. So when DUSA and the, so the Dundee University Sport, uh, Student Association and the executive um, came to me and asked if I would be interested to stand as the rector, I put it straight back at them and said, what's a rector? What do they do? And they described it as the all-important link between the student body and the court, so the executive at the university, and, the, and, and also the link between the student voice, the student body, and the press and the public. So I wondered if I had the experience. I wondered if I had, you know, the, the relevance. Brian Cox was, was, was well-loved and did a, did a fantastic job by all accounts but he lives in New York. And the two points where I felt like I could, I could do more, I could sort of take the baton from him and really sort of drive it forwards was, I felt like I could be on campus and, uh, and, and really meet the students uh, more. And I also felt like I was still just about young enough <laughs> to relate to you know, the student issues. You know, I was heavily involved in the unions and uh, student life and politics when I was at university and when I took the reins you know I was only nine ten years out of being a student myself so I hoped that you know with those two points local local enough to be on site and young enough to really relate to some of the salient issues that I could be relevant and um, and I hope that's the case I have absolutely loved coming back rediscovering Dundee as a city and uh, trying to create better links between the university and the city in terms of some of the big businesses. I feel that student has been uh, Dundee University has been voted time and time again as best student experience in Scotland, but people still think it's a place to study and then to leave. To be a place that people 
stay, start their young professional careers, start a family, put down roots and call home is, is, is still not happening enough. So, you know, I want to take all the things which are already great and good about the university and really help the integration with the wider community so that, you know, it, it, it just changes that culture of come and enjoy the university and then leave. You know, I think there's so many great things happening on the doorstep and so many businesses that don't have to mean you move to London now or, or even down here in Edinburgh. It's, um, it's exciting times for London. I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a topic that's come up time and time again in the podcast is how do we retain the talent that the universities create? Um, and there isn't an easy answer to that. It's a lot of little things happening and everyone working together to make that happen. And I think hopefully we'll start to see that happen more over the next few years. Um, but aside, I mean, aside from that, if you could see one thing change in the city, what would it be? Whether that's big or small. Well, I mean, I, I guess slightly inevitable, but, um, you know, with all the development that's happening on the riverfront, uh, I would like to see more joined up thinking with uh, sustainable transport. You know, I'd like to see some of the cycle paths and and walkways, you know, really thinking about not just what does the city do at the moment, but what city do we want to live in for our children 20, 30 years down the line? I think a lot of that thinking can be happening now with all the developments that are going on. I think there's a lot of wonderful stuff happening in terms of the, the the overall flow of the city. If you think of the flow of transport, people moving towards electric vehicles and more cycling and sustainable transport, I, I, I think there's a lot of good things happening, so let's stick to the positives. But I just think there's some daft mistakes based on, you know, how cities worked, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. You know, we we need to be really forward thinking and joining up the city, you know, so that there's better segregation between, um, you know, sustainable transport and 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 motorized vehicles. It's happened up to a point, but um, I think we've got a real moment in time now where we can we can do more. Um. So, if people don't know about you and what you do, um, where where would you point them to first to find out a bit about you? Um, well, I guess a lot of what I do is is not in the public eye. I mean, if people are interested in sport, adventure, breaking records, then definitely you know following online. I do a lot of events, coming along to 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 one of the events I do and and hearing more of the story and what I'm passionate about would be a great place to start. I'm just about to publish my fourth book, um, Around the World in Eighty Days. So if you're a bookworm, there's uh, there's plenty of good fodder there. But the, uh, I guess the hidden side of what I do, the, you know, the businesses and the corporate work is if you're involved in businesses in Scotland, you know, in, uh, in growing businesses, in enterprise, in, in young enterprise, then get in touch, you know, get in touch through the website, through LinkedIn, however, however you wish. And it's a conversation we can continue at any number of events that I put on. I'm, I'm constantly hosting business breakfasts and dinners and, and corporate opportunities. And if, if, if you're interested to know more about how I'm involved with growing businesses and trying to help enterprise in Scotland, then there's plenty of events I can get you along to for free. And the best way to do it is just the direct conversation. Okay, thank you very much. So 
that was Mark. Um, yeah, I mean, a massive thank you to Mark for for giving me the time um, and setting up the space in Edinburgh for us to do the recording in. I hope you got as much out of that interview as I did. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a real fascinating insight into how Mark has, has built this this career. And also, I think as well, I mean, closer to the end, uh, sort of a real poignant point on Dundee and the sort of the challenges that it's going through at the moment as a city and the things that, I mean, if we can start to consider that, start to act now, um, we could create real change for the future. And it's not just looking one, two years ahead, it's looking much further into that so we can make a big difference. If you did enjoy that and you are new to the podcast, there's a whole load of great episodes um, in the back catalogue. Please do go and check them out. Um, and to keep up to date with everything else that's coming out in the near future, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. And it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And if you do find us on your podcast platform, please subscribe. It always helps. And if you have enjoyed this, share it out. Um, tell a friend. I'd be very grateful. So that's it for this week. Until next week. Goodbye.